Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. You're listening to Punching Out. My name is Noah, and today I am joined by Lou. Hey, guys. And Greg. Hi, everybody. And today we'd like to talk about, well, it's the first episode of the new year, hopefully, and we'd like to talk about the year in labor law or employment law, because I think no matter what else you can say about 2018, I think you definitely can't say that it was a good year for labor. It was not really a good year for almost anybody in the legal sense. Nope. No good. It makes less than $500,000 a year, give or take. Suboptimal, definitely. But at any rate, what we'd like to talk about in this first little bit is, in case maybe you're not aware of, maybe you've forgotten some of the greatest hits of labor law this year. That was in 2018 is my new motto. Oof. (laughs) Yeah. That was so 2018. Yeah. We're, we're leaving that was 2018 in 2018. <laughs> but at any rate, if, if we're going to do quick hits, I think you have to start with sort of the biggest one, which is that, well, Trump got to a point, two justices now, that have decisively shifted the Supreme Court to the right, especially when it comes to things like employees, like workers. Uh, as I was saying before, if you ignore the part where – Obama should have been able to appoint somebody, and you just look at Scalia to Gorsuch, maybe the court shifted very slightly to the left. But, you know, of course, That's not Kavanaugh, saying a whole lot there. No, absolutely not. But Gorsuch might just be a bad person and not a lich. But, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Kavanaugh certainly reference. to the right of, of Kennedy. Yeah. Unless you happen to be a trucker in danger of freezing, in which case Ooh. I think Gorsuch is, you know— yeah. The, the worst no, card in the deck to draw. <laughs> At any rate, um, that ended in the Janus decision, which basically, as we said on a prior episode, you could sum up as instituting right to work for public sector unions, which are one of the last bastions of strong unionism in the country. Quick, re- quick recap on what right to work is. It's the ability for you to work for me. See, you're not forced to work. It's your right to work for me. It's just I can also fire you at any time for any reason whatsoever. The right is of the person who does not want to join a union, quote unquote, and pay union dues and so forth. So, yes, in non-right to work states, unions can put in their contract that in when negotiating, collectively bargaining, et cetera, with their boss that they can – that everybody who joins must be part of the union. Uh, in right-to-work states, you cannot do that. Right, and you can't force them to. You can't force them to pay union dues, which effectively... Right. Kills and, your union. Yeah. But you still have to represent them. So you can't even have the thing... You can't even have a thing where union members are receiving some kind of additional benefit, right. yeah. which right. might incentivize which, people to join the union. Which is the whole point of, of making everybody pay union dues in the first place is because if somebody's going to be collectively bargaining on behalf of everybody and everybody's going to benefit equally, then everybody should be paying into the cost of doing that. That's the idea behind taxes and, and, and everything else like that. And it's a public good, therefore it should be public, the risk for it should be publicly shared. But that's the easiest way to weaken unions is to say, no, you don't actually have to pay for it. It doesn't matter. And then it'll just go away on its own. Well, I mean, there there are easier ways to weaken unions, and some of them might be on the horizon. But, you know, we could revoke protections for uh, firing people for unionizing, for example. Mm-hmm. But hopefully that is so deeply embedded in labor law, it's not going to get ripped out. No, no, no. The 2018 hopefully. flavor was that you dissolve the entire company for having – because your yes. your employees yes that, that was is, very 2018 that is technically illegal but very difficult to prove that they did it for that reason <laughs> right yes even if they like mention it it's explicitly but neither here nor there actually one funny note i found <laughs> while looking up this janice case uh janice's colleagues who are unionized and who because he's a freeloader let's not you know but let, let's call it what it is um are now f- unable to ask anybody to pay in union dues to represent them, uh, whether they want to join the union or not. 
They threw him a retirement party. <laughs> but the retirement party was for members of the union. Ooh. So he couldn't go. <laughs> which is an incredible piece of passive aggressivity that I, I wish oh. I, like I had the nerve to pull on somebody. That's to amazing. be clear, even before Janice, workers did not have to pay dues to support a union's uh, political or social activities, you know, lobbying, etc. But they still had to pay dues that covered the cost of representing them, essentially. Janice meant that now they have to, uh, they have to pay neither of those on fairly dubious free association grounds. Yep. Neat. Excellent. That was so fun. I love that part. So that that's that's the big end as far as labor decisions go. There's another one coming down the pike, you know. So 2019, mm-hmm. look forward to it, where that would want to eliminate a union's exclusive right to represent a public sector workplace. Neat. In that that is also a freedom association. We could have we could have several unions. We could have no unions. We could have all That's kinds so of cool. fun things. That would which pr- almost certainly would be bad. You can see a world where it's good, but it's probably not. Yeah, there's um on a previous episode we talked about workplace democracy and I guess in France, depending on what position you occupy within a workplace, not like management versus employee, but depending on whether uh, what you do is like, quote unquote, a skilled trade or whether you're Mm -hmm. this or that, you might be represented by a different union. But the thing is, like all of those guys then are put together on a council to actually collectively bargain for the people that they represent still, which is presumably not going to be how this is applied. No. <laughs> in Mexico, for example, they have situations like this. And what they have been – well, there have been you know, fistfights and so forth between various union members. Uh, but also the problem has been that the employer tends to sponsor a union, which is fairly toothless. And that you know, having the support of the employer tends to be the one that crowds out all the others. Of course. But we'll, we will get back to that. That that hmm. will come up again at any rate. So that's the Supreme Court, but they weren't the only ones sort of running up the score on unions and, and, and workers in general. As far as this goes, um, you may have heard that there were a bunch of ballot initiatives passed in various states to raise the minimum wage, to uh, legalize marijuana, to do various sort of good things more or less unambiguously, but in certain jurisdictions, like Michigan, what you had was the state legislature or even uh, local courts and state courts, I guess, stepping in to reverse those changes. So in Michigan, there was a minimum wage increase that was going to be passed by referendum. And when the state legislature realized that this referendum was incredibly popular and it was probably going to pass, they chose to instead pass it as a law, knowing that then it would have to be removed from the ballot because it was now law. But after the elections, when majorities in uh, the, the, the Michigan State Senate and House shrank for the GOP, they could now repeal that law with a simple majority instead of doing it by a two-thirds majority, which they would have needed to uh, repeal a referendum. Referendum laws across states are incredibly complicated. Some require a majority of the votes. Some require two-thirds. Some can only change the state constitution. Some can change everything but the state constitution. In California, if you want to increase taxes or certain mm-hmm. categories of taxes, you have to we have to do it via referendum. But all these boil down to one thing. If there's a controversial ballot initiative, it's going to go to court, and then that's going to give the yep. state court a lot of power in deciding how it turns out. Which is, which is what happened in D.C., too. They Ooh. had an initiative to, uh, to increase the, the tipped minimum wage, yep. I believe it was, Initiative 77. And we are now in a land where until a judge ended sort of the, the battle over it, the verb repeal was getting used three times in the same sentence, and I really didn't understand what the hell was going on at that point. As I understand it, the the voters passed an increase in the tipped minimum wage, uh, so for you know waiters, waitresses uh, mostly, and other service workers. Then the D.C. City Council then decided that they were going to repeal it, and because D.C. doesn't really have a constitution. It's right. a body of laws created by Congress to, you know— supervise them because they're not a state there was nothing to stop the city council from doing that and the city council i believe heavily democratic 
showing that you know there really is not a, there's not a workers' party in this country as mm-hmm. much as much as we we might like there to be. And so now we're at the point where uh, they're, from what I understand, they're just going to have to put the initiative back on the ballot. At, at this point, it, it was a judge who said that the – I think the city violated some kind of common period thing. And so their attempt to repeal the repeal failed because they didn't give enough people time to comment on a thing that was negating a thing that they negated <laughs> that was originally voted for by those same people who would now have to comment on the thing. And what I'm trying to say is at this point that I feel like there was a simpler way to to do this, but okay. Probably. Um, Maybe just like – Pay people better. Yeah, just well, putting you it know, out there when you've got when you've got dudes who uh, fed Puerto Ricans, you know, during the chef Jose Andres, um, making these these uh, impassioned cases for how I already treat my workers humanely. You can't make me pay them more. You know that will ruin my incredibly expensive restaurant. Like not garbage. These five hundred thousand dollar a year consultants couldn't possibly. Afford to uh, have waiters serve them that make ten dollars a year or ten dollars an hour. Sorry, yeah, right. no, unbelievable. No, this could no. happen. No, it would destroy society. Yes, the- wait. There was just there was a graphic that was floating around the internet this week that was the um, it, like increase in jobs in Seattle since yes. minimum wage increase. Yes, and there I was, did see that. Was That's no, good. It wasn't. There was no change. It was only increases in jobs since the minimum wage went up to fifteen. Every time from when the minimum wage is been introduced to every single time that it's been raised people have said this will kill jobs and they haven't been right yet except maybe on a temporary and local level but on the grand scale of things absolutely not there might be a limit for when you know it would but we haven't reached it and doesn't look like we're close to it no no we're definitely not because people are still incredibly poor and the other argument i've heard all the time from people i work with is well it'll just make everything more expensive no it won't it just means people maybe won't starve as quickly the amount it will make it more expensive is much smaller than the amount of extra money we'd be putting into the economy because labor is only one thing driving costs. And those other things will presumably stay more or less the same. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, depending on which, who, whose study you read, you know, your Big Mac would cost an extra 10 cents to bump the minimum wage up to $12 or $15 for McDonald's workers. Yeah. Oh no, ten cents. Oh, this is this is reminding me of when uh, was it Papa John's that uh, expected Ooh. people to get really annoyed because their pizza would cost an extra seven cents <laughs> if the yeah. affordable he put, care it, he put it on the menu and yes, yeah. and then people took aerial photos of his house, which has like a moat. Yes, <laughs> and a car elevator. Yes. I remember I that. He still because, lives yeah. there. I mean, probably. I think he's still a stockholder, even if he's not chairman of the board. So he yeah. probably oh. he's probably doing okay. He's spending time hanging around with Peyton Manning, you know, <laughs> just doing that. That's his, that's buying his thing. buying several pizza franchises in Denver right before weed was legalized is a masterstroke <laughs> business move, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, Peyton! Oh, yep. neat! Just right. mastering mastering football, mastering business. It's amazing. <laughs> this is kind of petering out here, but we also had um, and. A little bit behind the scenes, we had for a long time hoped to bring you an episode on Austin's paid sick leave policy, which the city council passed, I want to say, back in like March. And uh, we can't do that because it doesn't exist anymore because the Texas Third Court of Appeals ruled that it is superseded by the Texas Minimum Wage Act. This is... This is a whole question of federalism here. So states are protected from interference to a degree by the federal government by the Constitution. Cities, however, are created by states, mostly by legislative acts. There's probably there's some constitutional protections varying on the state, but if the state legislator wants to wants to overrule a city, there's there's no way they can fight against it. It's just so these liberal cities within conservative states like Austin are very vulnerable to legislature deciding to interfere with uh, with their decision, especially because Austin is the capital and the state legislators, you know are there every day and presumably hate the dirty hippies that pass the uh, pass the legislation in the first place, so decide to take it out on them. Accurate. I'm going to only argue with one part of that sentence. Are they there every day? Lou, you're no, from Texas. No, it's... Yeah, uh, it's an extremely part-time job, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's an extremely part-time job. I, can't, I cannot remember the details because I haven't lived in Texas for literally 10 years. Uh, but when I was there, I remember something about how all state legislatures either didn't get paid or maybe got paid like 200 bucks or something like that a year to 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 be a legislature 
or they met for like it was something the ridiculous. Texas one? Yeah, like it was something ridiculous. Like they it was it was essentially yeah. non governance. Which makes A, you know, means you're not gonna solve a lot of problems, and B makes it so that poor people or people mm-hmm. who work for others as their main job can mm-hmm. be legislators. And then I I think the the last thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that now you've got a number of states at some stage of implementing um, Medicaid waivers that would enable them to force people to work to receive Medicaid benefits. I think Arkansas is currently the the farthest along. Governor Hutchinson has submitted like a full-on proposal and got a glowing review Mm. from the person in charge of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Like, honestly, it was um, <laughs> it was bad. Um, but there are, I, I think it's like 15 states are looking at some measure of like 80 hours per month or however many hours a week. But, but some amount of like requiring people who are probably already disabled and a good number of whom are already working mm-hmm. to or put in elderly a certain amount. Or children, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And didn't Kentucky like pass it and then yes. it was vetoed? It or was, something? I think it was actually, I don't remember about Kentucky. I think Kansas passed it, or no, Kansas got the waiver by asking for just the waiver and deferred consideration of the working part. So they haven't actually passed it yet. They just can if they want. Yeah, they just have the waivers, but they kind of said, like, maybe let's hash out the rest later. Yes. Because one of the few, well, one of the few actual philosophies in the Republican Party, as opposed to you know straight up id, I think <laughs> is you know uh, is is the the federalism and states' rights, which is often still a cover for racism. Yeah. But um, and so you know the, when when they're in charge, they tend to pass you know things that just sh- shovel money straight to the states, and the states can handle it however they want instead of passing more mm-hmm. comprehensive regulations. So if the states get this money and they only want to dole it out to people who work, there's Nothing really stopping them except Congress passing more strident uh, regulations, yeah. which they're not inclined to do. Yeah, no. The waiver I, – I remember back during the Obama administration, the waiver thing was seen as like, oh, because you know states will figure out better ways to do this. Well, Laboratories we'll unlock, of democracy. Thank you. <laughs> and what sort of nobody brought up is that this is a really easy way to do block grants. Like it once again yeah. relies on Democrats holding – a majority of state governorships, which wasn't a thing within months of that happening. And even when it was a thing, you had like a lot of those Democrats were never going to stand up for Medicaid expansion or for any kind of experimental health care. Uh, you know, your your standard leader was the guy who was all of the years old in Kentucky. And like <laughs> his great accomplishment was like building a website that works. Yeah. yeah. No. And the rationale behind, you know, the states having more power than the federal government is that they want to make laws that are good for good old Texans or whatever and not good for the New Yorkers who have no idea what they're doing. And <laughs> that's what wow. I sound like when I go home. <laughs> But uh, so so it's that which is ironic considering what what Greg you had just said about how s- cities within those conservative states have no power to oh, govern according yes. to what they're. If own you were philosophically need. consistent that that home local rule was the best right. way to do things, you would support the rights you know stronger rights for cities and and even mm-hmm. wards within cities to experiment their own way. But right or ban fracking not. like that was the big one that yep, yep. brought that to my attention is you know. Areas in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, New York even banned fracking and then were overruled by their state government saying, no, you can't do that. We're going to allow the petrol companies to do whatever they want. And and it's funny you mentioned that specifically in relation to education because that's actually where I learned that cities and localities have no constitutional protection from their state governments because when it comes to education finance – the only state that sort of pulls all their money and then throws it back out is Hawaii. Everywhere else, basically the state subdivides itself into some measure of school districts and localities and whatever. But it doesn't have to. You could no, it just as easily yeah. tomorrow in New York, you could pass a thing that said for educational purposes, all property tax receipts in the entire state of New York go into one big account and then they get dispersed again by population or by location or whatever metric you wanted. We're just not going to because nobody in Manhasset or whatever is going to like <laughs> vote to uh, you know have a school that doesn't have an officially Pepsi-branded cafeteria. That's true. <laughs> there's, there's the selfish aspect of people want their own kids to have the best stuff. 
there's you know there's a lot of racialized you know the, those other people won't don't know how to spend the money and uh there's the you know very strong tradition of of the local school and local school rule and what you're doing with your tax dollars and then all kind of combines into poor areas have worse schools than rich areas and so poor kids do worse than rich kids yep it's cool it's great one last thing because we were just talking about new york schools greg you had mentioned something that happened very very recently in new york employment law uh, yes uh, i believe it was Two days. So the the twenty eighth, Cuomo was a uh, governor. Cuomo was sent a bunch of bills. No, we can just call. Him we Cuomo. can just say Cuomo <laughs> to, to sign or veto. Um, and one of the ones he vetoed was a law that would extend bereavement leave for losing a spouse or child to two weeks. I believe right now you get about four days. Um, is the average? I think that those are the articles I was saying. And losing a spouse or child sounds fairly terrible. I've never done it, but it sounds like one of the worst things that can ever happen to mm-hmm. you. And I think two weeks is like the very minimum you would need to become a functioning human being at work after that. But the business association said it was too too much effort on small businesses whose employees are just losing spouses and children left and right. So <laughs> they uh, – I mean in plague. this country they probably are <clears throat> like – yeah, with you know, medical costs being what they are, and if they're yeah. small business, they're probably not insured because probably you not, need yeah. to be insured by no. your company. No labor laws apply. Well, not no labor laws, but in general, labor laws tend not to apply to businesses with less than 15 employees. Or True. Give or take. And with uh, FMLA, Family uh, Medical Leave Act, you're, you're not covered by it for – which is unpaid leave for – dealing with something you're probably not covered by that unless it's like 45 employees within 90 minutes or 70 miles i can just see your boss i can just see that some you know cartoon character boss type smoking a cigarette what do you need leave what do you need medical leave for he's already dead (laughs) yeah basically that that yeah yeah Yeah. holding up a big bag just marked (laughs) with dollar signs and everything yeah i want one of those laundry bags that has the dollar signs it's Indeed. Anyway, you mentioned specifically businesses, uh, the business associations being able to resist these things. And they certainly did that in the case of D.C. and in the case of Michigan and so on. And I think that's a very important sort of rhetorical device. So when we come back from this break, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to get into a sort of the structuralism of this. Is the American legal system, by its very nature, hostile to employees and workers? We'll be right back. If you're listening to this on the radio, congratulations. It's the exact middle point of the work week. If that doesn't make you feel any better, try listening to more Punching Out. All our past shows are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, y'all. We're back on Punching Out here. If you didn't hear the first part, I'm Noah, and I'm here with Greg. I'm Greg, and I'm here with Noah. And (laughs) Louise. Hey, guys. Who really enjoyed that joke. Everybody. Oh, my God. We're all here together. All right. So happy. So moving on. I've started celebrating early. (sighs) Cool. So. If you didn't hear the first segment, we talked about sort of the quick hits, the, the the big, bold headlines of labor news in 2018, or at least labor legal news in 2018, and why they kind of sucked for labor. It was just kind of downhill the whole time. And what we wanted to take this segment to talk about is basically, is that more a thing that happened because we have the administration that we have and we have the people in charge that we have? Or is it something structural about the legal system that those people are in charge of or are operating under? And from what I understand, we're all going to be landing on different points on this spectrum. So, well, Lou, would you (laughs) like to uh, start us off then? Yes. That's my answer. Yes. You you are allowed to elaborate. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, yes, there are structural uh, (laughs) difficulties. With stuff. Basically, workers will never win without complete overthrow of the government. Here we go. <laughs> this is where I get edited. Keep going. This is again. great stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With, I am definitely always the voice of, of revolution. Um, no, uh, government exists in order to perpetuate the and legalize the modes of accumulation 
popular through capital, often through theft and torture and uh, robbery. And the government exists in order to legalize this, so it's legalized everything. And the workers have no way to combat that in our current government system because the capitalist class will always be privileged in that and the workers will always be in it at a disadvantage. Oh, my, yes. pro- my professional uh, <laughs> association rules require me to say maybe to pretty much every question, and it depends. <laughs> so I'm going to say kind of. Um, I don't oh, think oh what say. a rebel. Right. <laughs> I don't think there's anything in the Constitution structurally that stops that stops us from instituting a worker's paradise uh, in the same way that, you know, the accumulation of executive power or the development of a two-party system is kind of inherent in the Constitution. But in a capitalist society, the people with the most money and the most influence and thus the most electable in a democratic society are going to uh, be anti-worker. So, yes, all the laws are are anti-worker, even if the structure isn't. Hmm. That's a... Nuanced opinion, and I still it still makes me giggle because it, it's nuanced. <laughs> I like it. Well, if you thought that was nuanced, uh, it, we're gonna get it's gonna get even worse here because oh, man. the way the way I view it is, I think there are general principles beneath the American legal system. Uh, if you go back to you know the founding of of the United States and sort of how the Constitution was put together and the minoritarian impulses of the founding fathers and so on. I mean, these are guys who like, you know, one guy wanted a monarchy and the other guy wanted a military dictatorship. And some of these guys didn't even, most of them had only a passing acquaintance with what democracy meant in any real sense of the word. I don't understand. Could you explain this to me in a rap, uh, rap based format? <laughs> I, I am the right, uh, yeah, I will also now proceed to support a uh, horrible law for Puerto Rico. Okay, we're talking about Limon Miranda. We're just putting Limon Miranda on blast. Get in the trash can, Len. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, um, these guys were not democratic, uh, you know, stalwarts in their, in their uh, majority. So I think there are general principles sort of undergirding the American legal system that do point against a working class. A lot of those have been remedied or patched over in the subsequent 250 years of governance to the extent that it has had any. But I think for the most part, the way that the legal system um, fights against a working class is mostly through like inertia and incompetence. It, it's what's there already was from the get-go minoritarian. It was there to support the rights of the upper class. And so any any progress that we have made has been made in spite of that legal system, not because of it, which I guess is not really a structural argument. There, there are – I'm going to say there are a few employment laws that are out-and-out straight pro-worker, a lot that are mixed – and a fair amount that are anti-workers, so I don't – but U.S. legal tradition draws on so many sources and is just, you know, every Congress is slightly different, every president is different, every Supreme Court is different, and it's it's just a whole bunch of things slapped onto each other. So I don't know how much you can say there's one animating principle so much as, you know, look at look at eras or particular actors or particular agencies. I think that's fair to some extent. Definitely, especially now when we're kind of realizing that, you know, the, the, the Warren court was actually the anomaly for a long time. It was, yeah, we, we need to turn this other court into that court. And it's like, well, yes, we do, but you're not bringing the Supreme Court back to its sort of roots. You're actually just making it more anomalous versus what it's always been. I do. Th- I will. One structural thing I'll say is that in an adversarial trial legal system like, like we in, in Great Britain and other common law countries have – a corporation which has is going to be more wealthy than most individuals is going to have more power to hire better lawyers and ensure better results even if you know even without any kind of corruption so that is a structural weakness which of course union workers can band together and hire lawyers and so forth so if we theoretically allow them to. yeah yes, which we, we don't because every at every turn every time we've had any kind of especially in the neoliberal world we've been living in in the past 30 years, every time we turn around, there's some new scheme in order to undermine unions and workers and powers and prop up people who already have power. And they're using the means given to them through government in order to do so. They're legalizing right to work 
state. Our states are becoming right to work. Uh, they're um, legalizing banking schemes in order to to profit as much as they can over pretend money. Like there's there's very little in the way of actual legal recourse that that you can have in our government right now in order to become a better or have a better working population. And actually, that's one thing we left out of the earlier uh, segment, mostly because we already covered it, <laughs> which is that the Supreme Court also decided this year that if you signed an arbitration contact, contra- contract when you began work, you cannot then join a class action lawsuit against your employer, which I guess it it's almost surprising that you were ever allowed to because of the country that we live in. But it had to be made explicit yeah. because, as you were saying, we live in a common law jurisdiction. So some judge actually had to hand that down. It's, well, the thing is, it could be worse. Well, of course, it could always <laughs> be not, worse. We can all, we can all be dead, but, Okay, let's so let's say let's say it had gone the other way, and the the Federal Arbitration Act was originally designed to reduce the caseload on the federal courts, which are, you know, absolutely groaning because we haven't hired judges in a long, we haven't expanded the judiciary mm-hmm. in a long time. The Congress could tomorrow say, oh, well, we're going to put more things in court instead of arbitration, create three new circuits, let President Trump appoint 40 new judges who would be there for life. And I don't know if that's better either. So, uh, but to your point, Lou, we have had, you know, we had right to work was illegal in America as recently as 1950. Um, it was under the original, the Wagner Act, which, you know, the, the, the one of the New Deal programs for labor. Um, it was the Taft-Hartley Act after World War II ended, and there was a resulting kind of labor unrest period. That a lot Taft was a very was a conservative senator um, that led to a lot of the bad uh, the bad parts of labor law that we're still dealing with today. So it is possible to pass these laws. They have been done in the past. We just we have to figure out why they're not being now. And and most of the things you said are probably relevant to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with you here. Yeah, because even even when we've had kind of what we consider unambiguous pro-worker laws like the Wagner Act, one thing that we've talked about in the past is how very often um, experiments in how to organize workers or how to create a more democratic workplace get, um, what's the word, avenues to that get sort of closed off by those acts. Like, for example, the National and Labor Relations Act enshrined into law the the right to form a union and the right to have that union recognized by the company and so on. But it also closed off a lot of other experiments in workplace democracy that were taking place around that time. And that actual workplaces in America, including the store that is now Macy's, uh, were practicing. So it enshrined into law the... Not that I'm saying that under capitalism, management and labor are ever not going to be adversarial. But it enshrined the most adversarial of those processes, the one that set them most explicitly against each other with the least ability for labor, ultimately, to bring concerns before management in a way where they might be taken seriously, but not necessarily the most contentiously. Yes. Uh, Volkswagen, in their... Georgia, South Carolina? Oh, their, I don't. Their attempt, like to unionize their, their attempt to unionize <laughs> their plant in the South was actually driven by the company. Volkswagen, of course, mm-hmm. is, is a German company. And in Germany, it's common to have a kind of works council, which is yep. a, some, an advisory board of workers that kind of tries to bring problems to the employer before they become a full-out union dispute. But that's not allowed in the United States because of the concerns we've previously you know, addressed over employer domination and things like that. So the only way they could have that was to institute a union, and eventually the union drive was defeated because uh, of fear-mongering senators saying that the company would pull business away from whichever state it was, despite the company saying they wouldn't do so. I think that happened, that particular case, I think that was Tennessee, because I think the senator you're talking about is Bob Corker, yes, who's also known as the senator from Nissan. Not that, you know, (laughs) there was an economic motive behind, oh, that's right, sorry, outgoing Senator Bob Corker, he retired this year. Yeah, no one I were discussing before the podcast, before the show, um, that, uh, for example, these the Toys R Us and some other companies that are going bankrupt as a result of, of various vulture capitalist uh, schemes, um, are they're being forced to repay their creditors and the loans that the vulture capitalists took out and other people, but not their workers. The workers are not getting their severance, they're not getting their mm-hmm. pension, or if they do, it's greatly reduced. So that is one, certainly, aspect of, of capitalism that is enshrined into our laws that, you know, the workers are less important than 
than the people who manage the money. And the lawyers. The lawyers wrote the law, so yeah. the bankruptcy lawyers almost always get paid if there is money to do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because that doesn't that doesn't happen for personal debt. Like, you can't discharge your student loans. Not that I would know a thing or two about that if you ever declare bankruptcy. You can't even discharge them if you're dead. You can in cases of extreme hardship. There was a guy who was attacked by a bear and lost an arm. He was allowed to uh, retire. He was allowed to discharge his student loans. But other than that, no. There you go, people. So Just where's the nearest? Bears. The yeah, nearest we bear. need to find some bears. <laughs> cool. I, I'm not. I mean, that's a calculation you shouldn't have to make. But no, here we are in 2018, not. making that calculation. Yeah. <laughs> what? What? What's the the lowest number of body parts you have to lose? Yeah. Like the lowest order of body parts. Is it like a thumb? Like what's yeah. going on here? Well, apparently you have to lose the whole arm. Which I well, mean, no, that's that's at least the arm. Like what's the workers' lower? compensation statutes in many states do do that? No, they absolutely you know, do. You lose and a thumb, it's worth more than more than your pinky finger. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You have to yeah, you have to grade aid. Everything. It's cool that we're discussing this in in the context of student loans though. Yes, that's neat. Yeah. But yeah. sort of that's my point. I, I think to the degree that you can make an argument for a structural prejudice against the worker, it it would be that whenever we do write these laws that are, you know, in their majestic equality, supposed to apply to both yes. a rich and poor alike, we do it in such a way that the kinds of debts and the kind of um, liabilities accrued by the rich and by corporations and so on are they're, they're always given more outs than than yeah. a person is because again not to bring it back to Puerto Rico for the second time in like 10 minutes <laughs> but under promesa and under the the current reorganization of the Puerto Rican uh sort of uh, economy and budget they one of the big sticking points is that the Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican government promised pensions to its employees it's one of the few benefits that state employees still get in comparison to the rest of of the Puerto Rican labor force and um the the fiscal control board has basically made it clear to the fail son governor that those have to go like not get reduced not be you know attenuated in some way no they have to go entirely, entirely yeah. and and we we treat the uh you know poor african-americans in detroit under a financial control board the same way and mm -hmm. on a global yeah. scale the imf you know can tell uh our, our friend David Graeber wrote in uh, his earlier book on debt that it told the Madagascar government that they had to stop this expensive public mosquito spraying program, and then the malaria came back and a bunch of children died. That's cool. <clears throat> no, and just to get back to pensions for, for a couple seconds, to me that is the most egregious modern, or at least in the past 30 years, use of primitive accumulation like how cool is it as a company that you can spend all of your money you can be completely irresponsible uh about your assets your 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 business model everything like that and know at the end of the day you can write off millions sometimes billions of dollars of stuff that you promised your workers that they would have that you said i won't pay you as much now but i will take care of you when you retire i will do this right and you can say at the end of the day oops sorry that is theft of the highest order not only that, but the workers will be blamed for yeah. Who who yeah. who gets blamed? Who gets blamed when GM goes down? It's the workers, despite yeah. them for many years just making cars that were inferior mm -hmm. to their right. foreign competitors. Well, not just that, but it's it's <clears throat> well, why didn't they save? Shouldn't they have saved? Everybody can save. Why don't they have four hundred one ks? You know, they they should have invested more in the stock market. Well, they should have put some money aside when they had those pensions promised to them, and then they were stolen. And then in many cases, they didn't have defined benefit pensions. They had defined contribution pensions right. where they had to pay into the system. So for they did do that. Yeah, That's they, the thing. They could have put that money exactly into a, a savings account or 401k or whatever, yeah. and they, they didn't because the company told them it, this it would is, work. It is the most violent theft, I think, that exists in corporate America right now is the theft of a pension system in our retirement funds. And the, and the I disagree. yeah, and the and the sort of darkly funniest part of that is that you mentioned how great is it to be a company that does this, right? Right. How much better, even than that, is it to be a company that didn't do any of that, that didn't put any of the work into making a successful business that ran for any number of years, that didn't do any of that, that simply bought another company and then got to do that? So you have Ugh. you have no you have never had an obligation to these people. 
as you know, you are so insulated from any responsibility here because you can just write it off as the problem of the company that you bought. Yeah. You swept in like a vulture, you bought the cor- this decaying corpse, and then when it was finally going to, you know, emit its last cloud of just poisonous <laughs> gas, that's when you went, eh, you know, really, it's the fault of whatever killed it. It's not my yeah. problem. Yeah, this is, yeah. this, this is, is the solution we need in order to, to make this a viable yeah. outcome, you know? This is, this is where are people tough. are making, this is rent-seeking. This is where people are making money just by moving money around. They're not producing yeah. anything. They're not providing services. They're not doing anything other than, than arbitrage and manipulating money. And they're getting rich off it and everybody else is getting screwed. Yeah. And in a better world, this, this would be illegal. And or the fact that regulated. this is so common, it is basically institutionalized into our economy that anybody can do it and anybody can get away with it. And basically every week you're hearing about another company that's gone belly up that has axed their pensions, but also given their CEOs miraculously millions of dollars in bonuses. And then you're trying to tell me that the government at some point is not entirely biased against workers and that there's anything that the government can do to fix that? Well, they they can. They just won't. Yeah, that's my point is like to me, structurally, to its core, there is little, if anything, the legal system can do in order to back workers at this point we could pass pro-worker laws the there's nothing that would stop that you know except that we don't want we and by we i mean our rich overlords do not want to yeah um i think i am once again going to do the extremely irritating thing of taking the middle position here this uh, is very unlikely like, na- you like napoleon before me <laughs> anyway no what i what i think i'm gonna say here is it I think what we're all arguing around is we're all considering structuralism a little differently here Um, because I think it's true. I don't think if you had a bunch of workers getting left out of their pensions, I don't think even the most uh, ideologically lefty president that could be elected in the next like 20 years could simply step in and say, oh, no, here's some money from the government coffers. You know, there would be so many congressional and and uh, popular obstacles thrown in their way that I think that sort of obtains as a structural problem. But on the other hand, I think you're right, Greg, that there is nothing stopping the re the the restructuring of the legal system to actually be in favor of workers it's just that as you put it you know the the people with the most influence don't want us to but we've hit you with 45 minutes of bleakness and for once i would like to end an episode on a hopeful note (laughs) so when we come back we're going to talk about maybe some of the good things that happened for labor this year and uh what we can do to help those continue You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome back to Punching Out. Uh, I'm still Greg. I'm still here with Noah and Louise, and we're uh, talking about... Hopefully, uh, hopefully, leave you with some sort of hope in the uh, the final segment here. Hey, still, Greg. It's nice to still be here, too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but we're not still going to be bleak in this segment because we always end on a down note, I and we like it, to we're break smiling. that streak. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, trying. Yeah, no, we're very good about being downers. Yeah. All right. Yeah, cool. So, bad. but we're not going to do it this time. We're not. No. So keep it chipper. We spent the past 45 minutes talking about how if you're an employee, if you're selling your labor for a wage, how the law in its most judge dread sense is dedicated to screwing you (laughs) over. And what we'd like to talk about is Greg mentioned in the last segment that there's nothing actually stopping us from passing remedies to these things and from trying to create a worker's paradise, legally speaking. So we'd like to start by talking about some of the things that we could do to do that. The most easy short-term thing would be to pass card check. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, that's when 
you you wouldn't have to hold a union election if you got 50% of your signatures on the union cards, thus sparing the employer propaganda phase of the union election, would, would enhance worker power. Much, much more long-term, we could... Um, so 49 states are at-will employment, which means you can be fired at any time except for a very small number of prescribed reasons. Who's the one? I believe it is Nebraska. Weird. Wow. Yes. Um, but this, And so that, that stretches way back to English common law. But if we made it more common that you could only be fired for cause, as it is in, in some other countries, and that workers have the ability to bring wrongful, wrongful termination suits if the cause is insufficient, which we already do for unemployment, so it wouldn't be that difficult to uh, broaden the process, um, that would – I think that would cause a significant change. Especially in states like New York where there's already – what is it called? The implied contract – Exemption? Yes. Exception is what it is. There's there's like seven states that have that, that have a broader sense. I actually learned this from you, Lou. Yeah, that's if I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was if you have to sign anything like an employee handbook or, or something like that or, or anything outside your job description, it, that's, that's an implied contract, which means that if you're fulfilling the duties of that contract, you really can't be fired for... Courts are Something all else. over the place on employee handbooks nationally, yeah. so it, it's it's good to have laws. Um, the one I, I signed for work, in fact, had something in it that said explicitly, this should not be considered a, a contract for employment. They and say the, that, uh, but you right. can say anything. In a right, yeah. yeah. That that handbook, I've read it multiple times, and it is very boring and dumb. But that, it's it designed to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, no, it is working New as York, designed. New York? It's not a perfect state, you know, see our comments about Governor Cuomo earlier, but there's a lot of good things that I think other states <laughs> could sake. copy. For example, um, as I mentioned, in other states, you, you know, your list of reasons to not be fired is very low and it's, it's uh, race, national origin, religion, disability, military veteran status, a couple other things. But in New York, that list includes, well, it includes uh, gay and transgendered individuals, mm-hmm. which, you know, that I think is something that. Uh, could go forward under, you know, under a, a conceivable next Democratic Congress. We could make a lot of progress on that. Um, but also, you can't be fired for your out-of-work recreational or political activities or for being arrested, for example, if you were not convicted of a crime. And some southern states have a similar exemption, you know, that you can't be arrest, uh, fired for using any uh, legal consumer product, by which they mean tobacco. Um, but... <laughs> Just even small protections like those that stop workers from being subject to the whims of their bosses quite so much, I think, is uh, is worthwhile and is a kind of a humanistic endeavor. Yeah. So that we got that going for us. Woo. And, and both of these are things that, as we've talked about on previous episodes, are things that were supposed to be priorities under the last Democratic Congress, the, the one that lasted until the 2010 elections, where, you know, car check under the Employee Free Choice Act was supposed to be a priority of the Obama administration, and then it didn't pass. Um, did it even get brought up for a vote? I don't remember off the top of my head, I but I don't think it did. I don't remember hearing anything about whatsoever. It was... Which is the just senator how from Pennsylvania was supposed to be a Democrat, but then he was a Republican instead. Oh yeah, Arlen Specter. Arlen, yeah, yes. that was a weird thing. Yes, uh, and yeah. then he, you know, he I think was the one that led the effort to kill it. Right, and then the what you're talking about protections for LGBT individuals, so that they can't be fired for their gender identity, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. That was supposed to be ENDA, which I believe also never really made it. That might have passed Congress. the House, but not the Senate. I don't. That was just. And, and and again, this is one thing, one theme that we have definitely essayed on the show before is that we can try and pass these laws and we should. It's it's not just a thing that we can. We should. These are important things um, for actual people. They hurt actual people. They degrade actual people, as you said, being subject to the whims of employers and corporations and the powerful and so we should pass laws that protect them. I, I, I think that's a given in this discussion. But one thing that we sort of have to consider is the fact that we have relied for the past maybe 20 years or so on giving specific people the political power to do those things. And what has turned out to be the case is that often those people have turned out to be very susceptible to the uh, interests of business associations and corporations and the powerful that don't want them to pass those things. Because as it turns out, many of those politicians are also subject to the same whims as the rest of us. 
All right, we're going to do a happiness sandwich here. I'm going to give you a good news, bad news, and a good news. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. Okay, so good Bring news is sandwiches. that some courts across the country are increasingly adopting a um, an interpretation of the Civil Rights Act, you know, that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex to apply to LGBT individuals. It makes sense. If you wouldn't fire a man for marrying or sleeping with a woman, you can't fire a woman for marrying or sleeping with a woman, etc. Some courts are not. The bad news, it's probably going to go to the Supreme Court. The good news, or at least the the hopeful part of it, in the 30s, the Supreme Court was striking down New Deal legislation left and right. After, you know, this is a well-known story, the court packing. And it became clear to the justices that uh, the president, the his allies in Congress, and the people generally would not were not going to stand for this, that they were trying to remake our society on better lines, and you know, that the Supreme Court could get on board or get swept out of the way. It's possible, especially John Roberts, who has a very strong institutionalist framework and doesn't mm-hmm. want to be he doesn't want to be remembered as the the chief justice that made the Supreme Court irrelevant. It's possible that with with enough pressure, these kind of things could go forward despite a, an en- enduring conservative majority on the court. So the the ultimate whim that we are all subject to is how much John Roberts cares about his legacy. Is what you're saying? This is a cool government. Well, con- there. Congress can take power away from the Supreme Court. It hasn't because the Supreme Court has historically had more prestige than the more mm-hmm. partisan branches. And I think it's been, it's been tried before, and it could simply pass a law and say, you know, it could say the Supreme Court cannot, does no longer has the jurisdiction to rule on labor issues or minimum wage laws or whatever, anything that's not in the Constitution itself as a part of the Supreme Court jurisdiction. I, I really do like the idea of a passive-aggressive Congress, just like every time John Roberts accepts a case, just, you know, sits there with his conservative guys and grants it cert, just Congress immediately passing a law. Nope, you can't rule on that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it could be done. It has been done, I think, once before. It was a something involving a Confederate veteran suing to be readmitted to um, – you know, to public life or public office mm-hmm. or something, and the the radical Republican Congress changed the changed the law while the case was being decided, and then the Chief <laughs> Justice was like, "Well, yep. we knew about that." Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think here. I think that's that's an important point to make. That I mean, it is unfortunate insofar as I think a guy who was literally involved in stealing an election. Um, I, I don't know how much you know. He's he's ultimately going to. Um, it worries me to have to rely on somebody's conception of their own reputation and their own legacy. But honestly, given what else is going on, I'll take it. So what you've got is that that's the sort of legalistic side of it. We have the opportunity to pass these laws, if nothing else, for the purpose of harm reduction. Well, we sort of like solve society around them <laughs> because I think I think we are all agreed that that's kind of the issue here that the laws of a society are ultimately going to reflect that society and American society as a whole, like it or not, is currently very hostile to the idea that people who sell their labor for a wage should have some power. I mean, yeah. we might, even if you're a right winger, politically speaking, you might want that kind of power. You might have some level of class consciousness, but it is as a cohesive force that's not there. That's not in the background radiation of the U.S. I'm not a, well, I'm not as doctrinaire Marxist as some people, but I think there are some eternal truths that are on our side here. The first is that people will always hate their bosses and they will always hate their landlords. And organizing around that will always be possible. The second is that, so the labor situation in the U.S., as you were saying, the labor, the legal regime, is a very specific one. It enshrines a very specific procedure into law. It's possible that some or all of that will go away due to legislation and court decisions. But it will never be the case that workers cannot withhold their labor and and strike and protest. Workers will always have that power. So the idea of a labor union or a strike or solidarity, it won't go away even if a particular legal regime passes away. That's true. And and I think you are actually seeing that because and, – and this is the second point that we wanted to talk about. In spite of all of these reversals, in spite of all of these um, for the worst people in the world, successes at getting things like minimum wage increases and paid sick leave laws and, and whatever trumped by – you know, a little money here and the 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 right uh, the right friend to talk to a politician there. 
in spite of that, we did see victories for labor. We we talked a few months ago on this very show about the hotel strike in some of the most expensive cities in America and how for the most part, those strikes were resoundingly successful. There, there were people getting four. Uh, there were people getting raises of four dollars an hour, which, don't get me wrong, is not enough for what house for what hotel housekeepers are doing. They should be paid all the money in the world because mm-hmm. they have to deal with your waste. <laughs> but for for the American labor landscape in 2018 was an absolute humiliation of Marriott, and and they won that. Not by caring about the legalities of it, but by saying we're we're going to do this, and they did that under a union, Unite Here, that has become known for its willingness to you know regard uh, people power as being supreme over whether you know this technicality or that court decision says that we can do this, which I, I think a lot of the older, more established unions have sometimes become a little bit calcified in that yeah, regard. The Taft-Hartley Act prohibited what's called a secondary boycott. Mm. You can't, you know, you can strike against your employer. You can't go protest against somebody else who's doing business with your employer. Doesn't apply to farm workers, which I see as our Chavez was successful. But um, and yet, and the teacher strikes. Not only do they have some success, they atten- attracted a lot of attention and support. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, a lot of the people involved in them were not necessarily the kind of people who are involved in most left-wing politics. So it might be possible to organize and to coalition with them on an issue basis, even if they are not, you know, part of like a leftist governing coalition due to their other right. ideological no, issues. That's absolutely true. I think one thing that going outside of the legalistic bounds sort of helps you with is that you can drag people who maybe don't share your politics at this time or who maybe don't think of you as somebody who's ideologically copacetic to uh, adopt some of your ideals and some of your values. Because as you said, everyone, pretty much everybody's going to hate their boss. Pretty much everybody hates their landlord. And I think at the the reality of the situation that we're facing is such that you do not necessarily have to be a doctrinaire Marxist to have some idea of um, the effects of, of the inequalities that we are experiencing upon you and upon people that you know. And it's important to remember that um, when people say strike and when people say concerted activity, they tend to picture, you know, unions. But there's nothing stopping, you know, there's nothing stopping you and the other guy who works behind the counter at your local deli from going to your employer and saying, listen, both of us will quit if you don't give both of us raises and, and better breaks. There's nothing stopping that. It's not only union members who can do that. And you, you have the right to talk to other people for about for your mutual aid and protection and you have – your other employees rather. And you have the right to discuss your wages and things like that. So – you can make a difference even if you are not a union member or in a unionized workplace. Which is ultimately a theme that, again, we try to constantly mention on the show, the, the theme of worker empowerment, that even uh, even in the most restrictive workplace, it's not that we don't think that there are obstacles and disadvantages and so on that you're facing. It's that we think regardless, you should know that as a worker, as the people who make society work, you have some form of power and you should to some degree feel encouraged by that. And I think the biggest evidence of this is, you know, we have uh, Amazon is coming to New York State to Long Island City. So it's cool. No, the conurbation is just going to extend all the way to the capital region now. It's going to be great. There's going to be bedroom communities in the Adirondacks. Um, But you've got that and you've got, um, what is it, Crystal City or whatever they're calling it. Um, But you've got these, these headquarters opening up. And even a few years ago, talking about unionizing Amazon workers in the U.S. would have been impossible. Even with a Democratic president, even with a Democratic Congress that was supposedly pro-labor, there was no way this was going to happen. And now you've got, even before these headquarters officially opened, you've got Amazon employees in both of these locations talking about how hard they're going to make it for management to treat them the way that management has treated Amazon workers for so long. And not just in the U.S., but in Europe, you had Amazon workers striking across, what is it, France, Spain, Germany, all these places. And again, management was forced to actually listen. So you've definitely, there's definitely something to be said for um, the ability of people, regardless of the what it says on the law books, to come together and organize for their own benefit. I, I'm, I've been quiet because I still have bleak thoughts, and I'm not going to ruin this moment. Aww. But thank you guys for trying to hope. 
It makes me feel better. That's all we can do. Right now, it's all we can do. But hopefully, in 2019, we're going to do a little bit better than hope. Woo! So, I'm Noah. I'm Lou. And I'm Greg. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.